Welcome to Useful Outsiders, a monthly podcast series brought to you by the Council for International Development. Kia ora koutou. Uh, my name is Julie Heggie. Uh, I'm from Transparency International and I'm chair of, it's a great pleasure to be chairing this meeting today. So I, w- what we're going to do is start with a karakia and we'll finish with a karakia as well. It's just to help us settle us into our mahi for the day. Um, and this, uh, so I'll start the karakia. Um, e te hui, whaia te matauranga ki a marama, ki a whaitaki na, na mahi katoa, tu, tu, tu maia, tu kaha, aroha atu, aroha mai, tato ia tato katoa. Thanks very much. Um, now we've got four uh, great speakers today and the, and the topic is uh, really important. Uh, to all of us. Um, For Transparency International, we are a a New Zealand chapter of a global organisation with um, uh, 100 chapters, country chapters. And for us, um, transparency is the key, is the antidote to corruption. That's the sort of our main interest in this area. uh, But it's also, the way we tackle it also is through developing great integrity systems uh, and through promoting fantastic integrity systems. And the code, um, the CID code is an example of that. I'm just so impressed with it. Um, it's about, it's a, really about the relationships we have with our stakeholders, the accountability relationships we have with our stakeholders, the people we work with, donors, and the general public. Um, and so that's sort of what we're going to look at today in a various ways. Um, we've got some great experts. Um, our, our, um, our speakers today are um, Jadine Buckley, she's from Osako and also sits as the CID Code Committee Chair. Terence Wood, who's from the Development Policy Centre at um, the Crawford School of Policy at ANU. And Jade Jackson, who's Senior Advisor of Transparency for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Um, so I welcome you all. I welcome everybody who's um, joining us today, whether it's uh, through the Zoom or through um, live stream. Um, welcome uh, Bulavanaka to some friends in, in Fiji that I know have joined us today and, uh, and to anybody who's coming in from outside. Thank you. Uh, so we're going to get um, going to start straight into it. Um, I, I'm going to ask each of the speakers to talk for five minutes around what's working and what areas for uh, their areas of improvement and why transparency matters. And the first I'm going to ask to talk is uh, Jadine. Jadine's over to you. Oh, kia ora, uh, mihi nui for that um, introduction, Julie, and, and thank you for facilitating this. Um, and I also want to thank everyone for joining us. Um, from my perspective, uh, as you have been told, I'm a, um, the chair, or the newly appointed chair of the CID Code of Conduct, Conduct Committee. Um, but with my other hat on uh, as Managing Director for ASACO, there's two roles here. One is we've got an organisation which is our organisation that looks at the reactive side of um, when things don't go so well, uh, code of con- conduct, misconduct. Um, but then also with the CID Code Committee, um, I'm really encouraged um, about the t- uptake of um the mechanism that the code, uh, the committee has, sorry, CID has provided in, in assisting organisations to implement good code of conduct policies and systems. Um, you know, that is a, um, is a resource that hasn't necessarily been provided by other organisations like CID uh, in other parts of the world, um, other than Australia, which, which also has a very strong um, commitment to supporting their members around accountability. 
So um, I, I guess that's the starting point for me when we talk about the discussion of, of what is going well. And from a New Zealand perspective, the uptake in the um, accountability mechanisms, and when I talk about that, I mean embedding into um, organisations um, a code of conduct policy and process is, is a really good start because it's not only that they're um, embedding this mechanism, but also it's the constant review, the triannual review of is it fit for purpose for this organisation and is it working well? Um, I think that's a really positive um, aspect to what CID is doing in this space and also the member organisations are doing in that space. So that's a positive from my perspective. It provides an accountability and a reporting mechanism to, to the donor, um, but also um, it's an opportunity for organisations to re report back to all their stakeholders. And Julie, you're quite right in, in terms of who they are. That's the public. That is the beneficiaries of activities uh, and also, and most importantly, the donor because you know, they want to know where their fund is going, funds are going. Um, I think New Zealand's really up to the ante in the last few years around that, and, and I find that um, very encouraging. But there is another side to that, which is um, how far do we go in terms of reporting back some of the issues that our organisations um, are uncovering while they're trying to deliver their services. And I think it's timely to have a honest conversation about what are the losses that have been experienced when you're delivering aid, whether that's in the developmental sector or the humanitarian sector, and corruption is still an issue, um, and also around safeguarding. And when we talk about safeguarding, obviously we're talking about sexual exploitation, sextortion, um, harass sexual harassment um, in the areas where our organisations are delivering aid. And I am wondering how much of that has been reported back up to the donor, um, how honest we've been in that reporting to the public, because obviously donate, donated funds, there is an accountability if it's from the government to the constituents of, the, of that government. Um, and also, are we having honest conversations um, about the tension between localization and um, cultural norms? Um, and the accountability within um, the governments that we're assisting as well. And I'm not sure that in our experience from a, um, from a private company working in that space, um, that necessarily the, the reporting upwards um, is as transparent as, as it could be. And, and when I talk about that, I, I'm just, some of the experiences that we've had as an organisation, and I'm not talking about CID here, is where reporting has been, for want of a better term, colonised in its language. So the report might, when, I, when I'm speaking about that, a report might be of an issue that's occurred around sexual abuse um, and exploitation, has been at times the organization requests that the language which comes from the local uh, area or the cultural language is changed to meet the governance entity's view of what that should sound like and I think from our perspective we have an issue with that because we're changing the language to suit a governance entity and not actually sending the actual language of what's happening 
uh, as it as it's spoken from a cultural perspective or from a local perspective. And I think that means that we're not really sending up the right message. You know, we're going back to, it's not localization actually, it's globalization and it's, it's colonization of even how we report. And I do wonder if we need to change and have, have more of a conversation around that as well. Yeah, I, I, I could go on, but I think I'd, I'd be really interested to hear what my other panelists, you know, have to say about that. Thanks so much, uh, Jadine. Kia ora. Um, Transparency International um, undertook a survey last year, a corruption barometer, where 6,000 uh, people across 10 Pacific Islands were um, interviewed and uh, about their perceptions and experience of corruption. Um, sextortion comes out, it's very worrying, the level of sextortion that's reported by them, um, but also um, the amount of bribes that are paying and, and, and others, um, some other sort of quite, quite concerning matters that I think um, people should be aware of. So um, thank you very much. That was uh, uh, challenging. Very, very good. Thank you. So uh, now we're going to move on to Terence Wood. Uh, Terence, you're on. You've got th three and a half minutes. <laughs> Off you go. What I'm going to do today is speak to you very briefly about the work that my employer has undertaken auditing the transparency of the Australian government aid program. Now, some of you will have heard the word Australia and wonder why should we even be interested in Australia? Um, trust me, there are two good reasons to be interested in what I'm about to talk about today. Uh, the first of these is simply that there's an interesting tale to be learned about the challenges the Australian government has encountered when trying to be transparent about its aid. And secondly, we could uh, ask ourselves a discussion, will Howard New Zealand fare if it was placed under the same level of scrutiny? And we could perhaps ask ourselves, would it be worth trying to place the New Zealand government aid program under the same level of scrutiny? Before we do that though, just very briefly, why should we even be interested in the transparency of government aid programs whatsoever? I mean, we know that both in Australia and New Zealand, aid programs only make up a very small share of government spending. However, it is worth remembering that uh, while the share might be small, as an absolute amount, quite a lot of money goes to foreign aid. So in Australia, 4.6 billion Australian dollars was devoted to the government's foreign aid program this, uh, this financial year. And in New Zealand, it's about a billion New Zealand dollars. So they're non-trivial amounts of money. So you'd like to think that given that that much money is flowing overseas in the name of our foreign aid, we might have some duty to the taxpayers of our country, the people who are actually funding this money, to tell them what's going on when we spend that aid overseas. But there's also another really important reason for being transparent when it comes to aid spending. And this is to do with the fact that our aid money is spent overseas. And so unlike the money that the government of say Australia or New Zealand spends on its own schools and hospitals, uh, when something goes wrong with foreign aid, it's very hard for people in the donor country, the people who might have some say in how that foreign aid is spent and who might be able to punish the government in uh, upcoming elections, to actually be aware that something's gone wrong with aid spending. The people who are impacted by our mistakes when it comes to foreign aid giving are people overseas, people who don't have a voice in countries like Australia and New Zealand. So for that reason, aid transparency is really crucial. It's really important that people in donor countries have a reasonable understanding or at least have the potential to obtain information to inform themselves about what their aid programs are doing in their name. One other point that I should make is that when we conducted our own 
audit of the Australian government aid program because we were interested in information that would be intelligible to say the average journalist in Australia or the average researcher. We looked at the types of information that the aid program makes available on its website and which are in a readily accessible form. So that is information in the form of PDF files, in the form of spreadsheets or just on websites. And this makes us very different from another organization who we might hear a little bit about today, which is an organization that uh, uh, creates an international aid transparency index, Publish What You Fund, because they base almost all of their transparency work off the availability of machine-readable XML files, which uh, to someone like me who's not particularly technically adept, is, but that sort of information is next to useless. So in our audit of the Australian Government Aid Program, we look for useful, usable information that the average sort of citizen or journalist in Australia might be able to draw upon to learn more about what their aid program is doing. And we looked at a range of different types of information, uh, starting from high-level budget information, all the way down to the availability of detailed program and evaluation documents. How did Australia come out? Well, when it comes to making high-level information on Australian, overall Australian aid spending available on budget night, Australia does very well, a lot better than New Zealand, I should add. Um, it's also improving when it comes to the sort of seemingly humble but kind of important task of listing all the significant aid projects that are funded by the Australian government on the aid program's website. So at least uh, the list is improving, so it's now easier to know uh, just what projects Australian aid has been devoted to. However, important information on those projects, such as their budget, for example, is actually getting less and less available over time, which is really concerning. And perhaps most concerningly overall, detailed documents on individual aid projects that the Australian Aid Programme funds have become much less readily available on the aid program's website over time. And the deterioration has been to such a significant extent that it's now well nigh impossible to find a good evaluation or policy or design document for the typical Australian government aid program project on its website. So this is information that you need if you really wanna understand what projects are um, all about and how they are faring. Uh, and unfortunately, that information is now largely lacking on the aid programs website. So that's where I'm going to stop. I certainly would encourage people in discussion to ask me why Australian aid transparency has got worse in some areas in recent years. And also, I'm very happy as a New Zealander to discuss New Zealand aid transparency too. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, uh, Terence. And that's disappointing, isn't it? Uh, you, you have this idea that things are getting better, but um, as we go into cycles of, of uh, getting worse, reporting reporting on outcomes and reporting having evaluations is such an important element of trust. Actually, knowing it's very disappointing, and I'm uh, keen to hear what the uh, what's the result for New Zealand. Uh, now, I'll move move on to Jade Jackson, who's senior advisor, transparency for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Jade, you're up. Thanks, Julie. Uh, kia ora koutou, everyone. My name's Jade Jackson. Um, I've just started recently in this role as Senior Advisor for Transparency. So it is definitely a work in progress space for us here at MVAT, but has been on the agenda for quite some time. Um, so I'll speak to you briefly about what I think is working in transparency um, and some areas for improvement as well. But just to start off, um, 
why transparency matters. I think it's really important um, to understand where and how our aid money is being spent. It's a prerequisite for development effectiveness, can help improve coordination and accountability. So I myself am obviously a big advocate and um, it's really important not just for ourselves to understand where our money is going to and make better decisions, but also for the public to know to hold us to account as well. And I think in terms of what's working and what areas for improvement to highlight, it's really about how is access to information for the public? So kind of what Terence touched on there about how easy is it for users to access the right information at the right time? Um, I think in terms of the what information people need to know about the aid program and where money is being spent, I would slightly disagree in terms of um, the IRT um, standard that you mentioned, Terence, but there are standardized formats internationally, which can help um, the data fields that we released be comparable to other donors. Having a way that we publish information on a regular basis, which is to a standard, which can be then compared to other donors is really important. Um, but I also absolutely agree that you shouldn't have to be an expert in open data to be able to use that information. So it's really important as well to then put it in a format that's not just accessible according to a standard, but that's accessible to the public if they came onto our website and wanted to know where our money's going. Um, so I think that's really important about the how, how are users accessing information about the aid program. Um, and that's definitely an area that we're seeking to grow in. So at the moment, we publish data on activity level information on a monthly basis. It is an XML format, which just means it's machine readable and it can be um, consumed by different platforms across the world, which can then compare to other donors and help um, also us to update it that regularly. Um, so we go through quite a thorough process here to make sure that we're getting the most recent kind of activity forecast information out there. What are we funding? Where is it happening and what sectors? Um, is it targeting gender, climate, these kind of key fields of information. Um, and then we also publish on our website things that are harder to update in an automated way. So things like our four-year plans, we've started um, publishing at the beginning of this year, which is strategic documents um, by geography and theme um, that we plan to update on an annual basis. So that's in PDF format. Um, and is, I guess, more accessible for the, your average reader. But we also have budget information that we share on our website that's updated on a quarterly basis. So kind of varies in terms of at what point do users need to see this information? That's a really important consideration, like how regular does it have to be? Um, in what format should it be? And yeah, I think those are some of the key considerations that we're thinking about here. So I'll stop there. That's good. Thanks very much, Jade. Um, so we've, we're going to have a few questions that uh, we've sort of got, um, we've got ourselves uh, that I want to ask, but also I'm seeing questions come into the chat. So we will make sure we try, we get to some of those. So, uh, but I'll start off with, um, with Jadine. Um, how did, let's talk about the CID code because it's a, it is a, you know, the main topic or a key topic of this webinar as well. How does it, um, support greater transparency what is it what is it about the code if an organization fully engages with it uh how does it how will it support transparency so previously there was a um 
you know, transparency in terms of the code was um, referenced, but not really embedded in the code. That's changed now. Um, and the reason for that is, is because it was shown that, you know, there was a, it, it, when a questionnaire was put out to our members, um, they came back and, and they really wanted, they encouraged that there was more transparency in their reporting. Um, and so the code has changed to reflect that. Um, um, you know, and, and I think, again, going back to the previous question about the uh, what's positive about that is is the fact that it's coming from the membership and and um, when you have that I think that means you've got better engagement but the importance of it is is really even just from an annual reporting perspective as to um, how organizations are doing um, what are the issues they're facing um, and where the money has been spent all the things that we've talked about the code has been developed to assist organizations to do that because you know we've got a range of members who vary in size Julie and um, some you know will have um, compliance officers for want of a better term in place to be able to support the code right and to to gather that reporting but then on the other hand you might have a really small organization that doesn't have simply have the resources to be able to do that and that accountability or that responsibility is is across the whole organization or it might be on one person who looks at it once a year or once every three years so um, the CID code has tried to make it as simple as possible for organizations to be able to a uh, again embed code of conduct into their into their organization um, and be able to report back on what's happening in the code space and give them good guidelines and that includes transparency um, because this is all about as you pointed out we all know is about accountability um, upwards sideways and you know for want of a bit of turn downwards um, it, does that yeah. yeah, I think that's really good. Um, uh, so, uh, oh, Terence, um, there's been a question in the uh, in the chat, and also a question I've had as well. What are what are the drivers? What do you think the drivers are for that drop in transparency of aid reporting of aid um, outcomes and so on reporting in Australia, and and, and also if you could touch on New Zealand, thank you. So. It's kind of interesting in Australia's case, I, I mean, we all uh, sort of tend to think of governments as entities that like to hide things. However, the deterioration in Australia over the last decade has primarily been a function of the fact that simply less resources have been devoted within Australia's foreign ministry to making sure that information uh, about various aid projects is made available online. And so there's kind of an interesting lesson here, which is that we all tend to think of transparency as simply being a question of pulling open the blinds and letting people peer in. But if you're an organization as complex as the government aid program, you actually have to make a proactive effort to gather key information within your organization and then make it available to the public. And that's what sort of fell apart with the demise of AusAid in Australia and what I'm hoping will increase again in coming years in Australia. Um, and then very quickly with regards to New Zealand, I, I don't think New Zealand would fare particularly well. Um, it certainly wouldn't have fared particularly well a couple of years ago were it subjected to the scrutiny 
of a dev policy aid transparency audit. On the other hand, hearing what Jade's had to say, I, I thought I found that very encouraging. And I'd like to think that were we able to look at trends over time in New Zealand's case, at least now, starting now and in coming years, we ought to see a trend of improvement. So once again, it's just encouraging that Jade is in her role and here with us all today, that would seem to reflect a commitment on impact the uh, behalf. And as I said, part of the essence of aid transparency is simply devoting resources to making sure key information is available. So that's encouraging. Uh, Jade, I'll, I'll come back to you now. Just, uh, uh, I think you answered the question that I had earlier. It was a really good answer. And I think you gave it really a good go. Um, it was a sort of about the uh, publish what you'd funded, shown an overall drop um, in aid transparency um, across global donor agencies. So, uh, but I think you've, I think you answered that in terms of what uh, MFAT is doing. Uh, one of the things I wanted to ask you was also about what expectations you have around transparency by um, by aid organisations uh, in terms of their what they publish. So, perhaps you could, if you would like to have any reflection on that about the level of transparency by aid organisations themselves? Uh, yeah, good question. So um, in terms of these standardised international formats, they're actually, I find them very useful in, for that function of it being comparable. There is a way that you can, if even a partner organisation like an NGO um, were to report against a standard, it would just help us globally to be able to trace like where the money's going. So you have okay, if donor reports according to the standard and also the partner would report to the same standard, it, you know, these platforms that absorb this information, it, it would give more insight, I guess. And I think there is more pressure on governments to report according to these standards due to these tools like these indexes. So the Aid Transparency Index is the only measure, I think, of um, independent aid transparency of donor agencies, um, development agencies. And so the tool holds us to account because it gives us a score um, and we can kind of see where we're tracking against other donors and it prompts us internally to go, okay, we need to improve on X, Y, Z. Um, I think the tools is really useful because it prompts that, but also we shouldn't be driven by that score. And I think what happened um, in our last huge jump up to in 2020, was that we were kind of trying to do what we could to improve our transparency in the kind of um, in a short-term way. And we made some long-term improvements, which are still reflected in our 2022 score, but we made a deliberate decision to not try and bump up our score because we wanted to make sure that our improvements were sustainable. And that, like Terence said, it's really hard in a resource constraint environment where we have to make you know, some trade-offs between how are we going to invest in collecting this piece of data systematically that allows us to routinely publish and things. So that's the kind of journey that we're on. Um, and I think for, yeah, partner agencies, NGOs, and um, it's, it, it is also a resource constraint environment and very would be tricky to publish open data on what, what kind of activities you're supporting and things. So perhaps a shared learning um, opportunity there, I think um, would be, interesting to explore but yeah I would imagine even with things like these due diligence frameworks and code of conducts are also really hard to attribute resources to so um, 
I know how much of an investment it is at MFAT to publish open data on a regular basis. So yeah, just a few thoughts on that. <laughs> I know that's good. No, that's good. It's really important. And uh, picking up on that issue of um, uh, the cost benefit kind of thing, what you what you what you can get for what you uh, what it costs an organisation to do it, and let's talk about the aid aid, um, aid organisation itself, what it costs them to do it, and what the benefits are. Um, Jadine, could you have a think about you know, have a talk about that? What are, what do you think that the the, um, the actual cost benefit is around? You know, what's the risk and the, and the cost? Uh, it, it, because I know a lot of organisations that we just haven't got, you know, smaller ones will also say we just haven't got the resources. And so maybe just talk about that a bit. And then there's a question in the chat I want to move on to as well. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, that, that look, you know, you can quantify it in terms of, of money when it comes to loss in terms of fraud, right? Um, because even with your donor funding, even if it, there's a 12% overrun and in, in spending on programming um, you know that can be attributed to whether it's support costs uh, and, and whatever but uh, you know the biggest risk and then certainly that we see is is from a reactive perspective is to people because at the heart of everything that we do in terms of development and humanitarian and delivering aid is improving the lives of people and um, from our perspective, um, I, I'm not sure how you quantify that in terms of money. I'm sure you can, um, but not necessarily if you look at the impact. And I'll go back to, to um, sexual abuse and exploitation because safeguarding has become the important, has become the focus over the last years, quite rightly, uh, for organisations to implement safeguarding mechanisms within their programmes and within their um, delivery of, of aid. So the cost um, to human life and to um, safety um, and duty of care within the beneficiary and uh, organizations and countries that we work in is quite large because it impacts the trust that uh, locals would have in an organization that is delivering aid. Um, it therefore um, can cause more social economic problems. Um, it can also, um, from a sextortion perspective, uh, increase um, um, harm around sexual exploitation in, in a community. Um, and, and, you know, it's really hard for me to talk in, in complete detail because these are some of the things that we are dealing with from a reactive perspective. So the risk initially for us is, is the harm to, to people, but also there's a reputational risk and also there's a risk to organisations who suddenly have their funding cut off. Um, and they aren't able to actually operate. The other part of that is actually where countries or um, governments will run a organisation out of a country because of the harm that is increasing around that particular programming. 
and um, and and that's happening all the time. It's it's happening um, internationally. It's happening. We we spend a lot of time working in the northern hemisphere, um, and there has been a huge increase in reporting around sexual exploitation and abuse. Um, there are commissions being engaged. One last year um, in DRC, and another one has just been implemented now. Um, and, and so there's a real coverage and a real amount of spending that's going on in the northern hemisphere and across the continent, African continent, and in MENA states. Um, we know there's going to be a big wave of that coming um, for um, Eastern Europe and the bordering states around Ukraine. Um, there's already indications of issues being around where money's going to have to be spent on the reactive side of human trafficking and sexual exploitation. And interesting for us, from our perspective as an organisation, is we're only starting to see um, more reporting happening in the Pacific. And if there is a low reporting, that is a concern to me as a red flag, because that means there's something wrong with the mechanism there. So I know I've gone off target a little bit with the, with the question, but um, it, it's sort of a context in which we can start to talk about what the risk is, because the loss is easy to, in terms of financial fraud and corruption is easy to find. Um, because you just can see if, if there's bid rigging, if there are kickbacks going on, um, you can say, you know, if it's easy to do an audit on that and a, and a forensic audit and find out where the loss is. Um, it's not so easy when it comes to um, behaviour um, and criminal activity amongst people when it's around sexual exploitation or abuse of authority. Thanks very much, um, Jaylene. As, as we know from Transparency International, including in our chapter experience, it's a, it's a, um, it's a, a, a really tough issue, and it can destroy a chapter, which we've had the case of in the past. Um, I've got a question in, uh, from Matt from Caritas. Um, in the context of increasing shifts towards localization, whose responsibility is it to be transparent, NGOs or the implementing partners? And where do we draw the line in terms of who needs to be transparent about what? All right, I'll put it open. Who's going to open? Who's going to answer that? I'm happy to have a quick crack, um, although it's a complex question which would take a, a while to answer. Um, so, but in the interest of being sort of parsimonious, I'd say that to some extent, the main sort of the most important element of transparency there would simply be uh, donor country NGOs being transparent with the people who make donations to those NGOs about how they're working. So we are now working increasingly uh, with local partners, and um, this is how we monitor what the local partners are doing. I mean, yeah, I mean, so it just seems like if you're being transparent to the people who's giving you the money uh, and giving them, them a, a sense of how you are operating, that would seem like an important first step. There's almost no transparency on the funding and aid provided by China and Islamic aid organisations. Do you have any thoughts on this? IRT, which is the um, International Aid Transparency Initiative, which actually develops the standard which we report against, um, does uh, assess the number of donor agencies, including China. Um, and so I think in terms of thoughts, I mean, it'd be great the more donors can move from not sharing information to sharing information. And I think indexes are really important to show that um, because it just shows where organizations are tracking and how how transparent they are being about their aid programs. Um, yeah, so I think supporting organizations like 
IRT who are trying to bring light to how organizations are doing um, in an independent way are really important tools for that. Yes, perhaps it's, <clears throat> you can show show a horse the water but not get him to drink. The um the um we know I know that there's problems been problems in constituency development funding, for example, that we've had some of our chapters have had to address and um and uh, and China funded now in Papua New Guinea um, with absolutely no transparency whatsoever, and basically it was just handed out by the Prime Minister to those people who he favoured it, those MPs he favoured, um, which was you know which was um, completely wrong. Um, but but when you look when when we looked at it, it, there was zero transparency from Taiwan who had previously funded that fund as well. So um, it, it's about looking back. I mean, yeah, it's true though that each um, that there is, uh, yeah, it seems to be true that there's um, there's there's no transparency at all coming from those places. Uh, for Jade, our donors are very. This is from Sahara Anai from Adra. Our donors are very good at holding us accountable and being transport transparent in our reporting to them. Who is holding the donors accountable to do the same? Is there a platform or forum in which this takes place? So Jade, who does MFAT have to be accountable to for the transparency? It depends, I guess, in what um, area the um, Sahara was meaning, but um, I think in terms of transparency, you can have all levels, like Jadine touched on before, right, like across, up, down, and we obviously report to um, government and um, parliament were held to account from FADIC. Um, they had a recent inquiry into um, the aid program in 2021. So that's um, a special committee, which then would look into our aid and recommend areas for improvement. So we're held to account in the reporting that we do um, as in development, government department. Um, and, but then I think it's not just about reporting upward, like I think the question is kind of saying, and I think we tend to get in the aid sector and this constant reporting upward that standardized, you know, even, from local partners up into INGOs, up to government. And we're very good at kind of formalizing that, but then what about reporting back to each other, I guess. Um, and I think that's an area where we can potentially improve. Um, and what do aid organizations want to know from MFAT um, and kind of asking that of us. So I think like the four-year plans that we've now published on our website, I remember working for an NGO and I always wanted to know, um, you know, what are impact strategic um, intentions in this country? And it was quite hard to access that information. So I think it's important for NGOs to pressure um, us to say, you know, we want this information available so that, you know, like there's that communication rather than just feeling like you're reporting only one way. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. Jadine, you talked before about uh, local language through reporting being colonised and um, changed in order to fit in uh, somebody else's uh, paradigm. Uh, could you talk about what your vision is of what it would look like to have uh, to elevate local language through reporting? They said e.g. video, fun on all, storytelling, etc. I, I, you know, I, I think that's a really good question. I, I don't have all the answers but but you know I, I think I think the use of other tools rather than a report which is um you know 20 to to 100 pages long um and is set out in a specific way um is is a very 
it's a very academic and, and old way of reporting back on some of the issues that at a localised area might be having. And it might be easier to be able to prepare a report through a video or through um, audio or through just being a little bit more um, flexible, a little bit more flexibility and how make, how measures are reported or accountability is reported back. Um, you know, some people, for example, and, I, and I'm going to keep it pretty, look, I'm terrible at putting together tables. Right, it's it's not my and then putting that data into into a great um, chat. It's not my skill strength, and but I'm good at writing report because I'm a very verbose person. Having said that, um, it doesn't mean that if you were to report back in a way that is more simple for you, because you're. Um, but you're still meeting the targets of what you're supposed to be reporting on, then why does it have to be in a in a 22-page report um, as long as you're meeting all the, all the um, I'm trying to think of the best word for that, but as long as you're, you're reporting back exactly all the information that's required, then um, I think it can be done in other ways. And I, I do agree that language can be changed. You know, we, we're constantly, and I think we all see it from time to time, every time you attend a meeting every six months, you're suddenly using new words like pivot, transformation, um, I will truncate that there, and that's meaningless to to um, to you until you start hearing it everywhere. Um, but it's one way of, of talking, and it not, isn't necessarily language that translates across all cultures. Yeah, thank you very much, Jane. Excellent. Aaron from CID saying, are there any recruitment practices that can ensure that staff prioritise transparency in their work? Well, thank you, Aaron. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think there is anything specific, actually. Um, but I do know, um, and when doing um, some reviews of HR recruitment practices, that more questions um, could be asked around whether, when recruiting, whether a person has been involved in um, misconduct um, in, um, inquiry. And that doesn't mean that that suddenly stops someone from being recruited. It just means it's an opportunity for as an employer to ask more information. Um, and that will assist when you have, um, for example, an organization that has had um, staff which have had to be let go due to misconduct, um, especially in emergency responses. Um, and then they've just crossed the crossed from one container office to another container office and being picked up by another organization because that information hasn't been shared. And, and there is confidentially around confidentiality around that. Um, it needs to be, right? Um, but um, they just didn't ask the simple question um, and, and explored it further. And that's not always just about references either. So that's one part, which I know wasn't necessarily the question, Aaron, but also, yeah, it should be asked about um, at a recruitment level. Why not? Yep. Yes, you certainly have police checks and so on as well when appropriate in terms of financial accountability, which are, um, which are already... Um, all right, good. Uh, now, I'm, somebody says, I've seen firsthand the lack of transparency information and information available for Australia's aid program having a direct impact on DFAT, having a direct impact on DFAT staff themselves being able to do their jobs well, particularly when they're trying to understand how their bilateral and regional projects interact. This, the opportunity costs from donors not being equipped with their own information is huge. Now that's one I think, Terence, that might be in your camp. And there's not much for me to say other than Stacey is spot on there. That, that's completely correct. 
I don't know if donors think about this uh, in this way enough, but yeah, if they're more transparent, they will make their own work more easy a lot of the time. So really good point. Um, Jade, have you got any comment to make on that question? Yeah, I agree as well. Um, and just a point that I think one of, yeah, like our staff are even a stakeholder for wanting us to make this information more accessible in a usable format. Um, that it's like Terence mentioned before, we're working quite a complex setup in these um, aid agencies and even just being able to understand what each other are doing is quite hard to come by sometimes in an um, easy, intuitive, interactive way. And we, um, so yeah, focusing on effort in that space is really important, not just for the public, but internally as well. Thanks very much, Jane. Now we're, we're just gonna move on to a little bit about public trust and um, and I'll refer back to the corruption perceptions, the corruption barometer, sorry, the corruption barometer Pacific, which happened last year, where, where in most countries, um, when they were asked the question, when people were asked the question, um, how, how much do you think NGOs are uh, most mostly or uh, or all corrupt? So they, this was asked about police. It was asked about politicians, and and NGOs did come down the list. However, it was still around ten to fifteen percent, and in Kiribati, sixty percent, uh, which is pretty shocking. So still really concerning that 12, 10 to fifteen percent of people, ten to fifteen percent people think that the NGOs working in their country are mostly or fully corrupt. Um, now this is about public trust, isn't it? You know, and it's about what the what the elements are that uh, drive up public trust and drive it down. Um, so I wanted to ask, um, I shouldn't have told you what the percentages were from the barometer. I should have waited, you see, sort of waited, then see, then we want to see. Everybody now knows what people think and generally think. Jadine, you got any comments on this one? The sort of general level of trust? I, you know, part of that might be perception in terms of transparency. I mean, we've experienced it in this country, right? When we see, um, you know, splashed across media pages of of organisations, whether it's a government or or a large law firm, for example, that has conducted its own investigation and then not really published the results, and um, or if really, it's not even the results; it's the process. People don't understand the process. So, um, and I think that's typical across um, all, a lot of organisations, a majority of them. If you're not talking about what your process is with your constituents or your beneficiaries, um, then they're not going to, they'll fill, where there's an absence and a vacuum of information, people will fill in the gaps. And um, if they've been told we're not sharing that information with you, then the, the default, it's human behavior and human nature is to go to, well, you're not telling me something, so there must be something not right. Um, but also, you know, I think it's a lot of the people who uh, we work with, you know, they're working on the ground and they uh, probably are speaking from experience. Yeah. Uh, Terence, did you have anything to add to that one? Um, only that we've surveyed Australian public trust and Australian aid NGOs, and it was reasonably high, not as high as you'd hope, perhaps, but it wasn't terrible either, and it seemed to be getting slightly better over time as well. Um, and I do also think that Jadine made a very good point, which sort of to do with the availability bias. Sadly, uh, a lot of the time, the, the main 
you know, the, the only instances in which people hear about NGOs working overseas is when there's some sort of scandal. Um, and they don't actually hear about all the good, quiet work that they're doing and that the public is sort of largely taking for granted. So that's a particular challenge. I'll put a link in the chat to our poll in a second too. But the good news is in Australia, at least, the cynical old Australian public seems to have a reasonable level of trust in their NGOs. Dave, have you got any comment on the trust element? Yeah, I think I could say a lot, but I'll try to be concise. But I think um, definitely in this, I think somebody made a comment in the chat about um, more young people are also um, interested in this um, because they want to know where, how, because we live in an information age where information is, we have too much of it and it's more just about harnessing it. Um, and I think that's the challenge we find ourselves in. Um, and people can read through the skew that you put on things. You can pitch it in a, you know, easy to digest way. And people want to know the core hard facts, I guess. And actually, yeah, um, want to know the truth. I think so that can be um, what can negatively impact levels of trust um, in organisations who um yeah aren't being as transparent as um people would like them to be uh i think across the board in the whole sector though like you know we have this kind of fear of um wanting to say what didn't work um even you know like what but we just want to say what's working well because we want to hold that public trust um and so i think that's a challenge for all of us and it's kind of in our human nature to want to protect ourselves and say what we're doing well um so it's kind of a challenge to say well this is we're going to report everything that we're doing what is working what's not working um and it's also striking that balance between confidentiality and transparency and um again challenging that um you know wanting to hold things um private and but actually questioning that on a constant basis and keep coming back to it i think is really important to say to be of the um I guess start out wanting to be transparent by default and then only in a reason that's really justified should you then withhold information so um yeah just a few thoughts on that good good thanks i'm reading through the through the comments as i'm saying and uh younger people need to are more skeptical they need to know more than why they how. oh yeah i'd also like to say that there's a lack of trust in how the funds are disseminated and the management of funds for example the un whistleblower catherine volkovich uh, outing peacekeepers that were involved in human trafficking trafficking yeah and sometimes i know that there's been issues with um undp <clears throat> um, overseas where uh, people have been a whistleblower and ended up um, paying the price for speaking out which is a which is another, just because there's a bureaucracy of, of support. One of the huge uh, things that we advocate, of course, I mean, tone for the top is extremely important and both your governance and your management uh, uh, have to show the way in, in actually uh, both in transparency and in, um, in, in ensuring integrity across the organisation. Everybody in the organisation should know clearly what the expectations are coming from the top. And if it's, that's not the case, then you'll find that it'll filter down through, um, they just it'll just murky, become murky further down and people also leave getting frustrated with the fact that that's it's not the kind of organisation they thought it says it is and it's it, and it's um, annual report. So it's really important to have that very clearly stated and very clearly agreed by governance. Um, I, I wanted to just, we're heading towards the end and I, I'm going to ask each of our speakers to have 
for a little bit of a summary statement on, on the, this, this topic that we've had today. I'll start with Terence and then Jadine and then Jade. So uh, you've got a, a minute or so, just to last thoughts and a sort of call to action, what you think needs to be done. Sure. Um, so transparency is an essential element of good aid practice, but it doesn't come without some effort on a donor's behalf. Um, and I would really, and donors generally won't make that sort of effort unless someone is asking them to make the effort. Um, and so I would really encourage New Zealand civil society, um, of which I'm a part, even though I work for an Australian organisation, to uh, play our role and uh, make sure that we continue to ask MFAT to be as transparent as possible and to produce information of a form that we can draw upon as we're trying to learn what, about what our aid programme is doing. So that's uh, what I have to say. Other than that, it's just really encouraging to see so many people at an event on aid transparency too. So thank you very much to the organisers for hosting it and to everyone for coming along and being interested. Thanks, great. JD. Uh, th thanks, Terence. I, I agree with Terence's um, closing thoughts, and and um, but but I also am encouraged by um, what Jade was saying in terms of being accountable um, and more open, and perhaps towards the organisations that MFAT are, are funding. Um, I honestly think if I was to take away anything from this is that we continue this conversation um, and sort of about talking about the stuff that we are doing well but also talking about the stuff that we're not doing so well as well. Um, and we're, because it's only when you acknowledge that, and I think we can acknowledge things publicly without sharing too many details, um, that we're able to improve, right? Um, and to increase that public trust is showing that, look, we, we don't always get everything right, but we want to improve. And I think building public trust means that perhaps um, organisations like MFAT and like our government um, will have more confidence to be able to pro provide more funding perhaps or allocate more funding towards programmes. Um, so I, I encourage this discussion and I'd like to see more of it occurring. Um, and um, I also thank you, um, Julie, for hosting this along with CID because um, it's been a really good conversation, some great questions, and I think there's further discussions to have after this as well. Thank you, JD. Jade. Thanks. Um, yeah, I think what stood out to me is that uh, transparency isn't the end goal and it's just a means for us, and even the said code of conduct, the kind of strenuous reporting requirements, all of these things are not the end goal. We put them in place because we want to have better development outcomes we want to um and yeah i think that's at the end of the day have better decision making better access to information um so i think that's a really important thing to keep in mind that these systems and processes and goals for transparency it's not the end goal but it's a means hopefully to get us to um yeah better development practice but yeah thanks everyone for engaging in the chat today and for the other panelists really um interesting comments and thanks julie and sid for hosting Kia ora, thank you, um, Jade. Uh, so I'm going to finish with a karakia whakamutunga, uh, and this is just to settle us down, and it's about uh, uh, the work being finished and blessing us all and our family and peace to the universe, um, which is a great ending. Um, Kua mutu a mato mahi mō wā, manakitia mai mato katoa, o mato ho, o mato whānau, aio ki te aurangi. 
Thank you for listening to Useful Outsiders. Please subscribe, share, rate and review and help us to spread the word. We'd love to hear from you, so if you have any feedback or ideas for future episodes, please get in touch. You can find our email in the episode notes. We hope you'll join us for the next episode.